1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. The following podcast contains explicit language.
0: I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, Dumb Culture Gab Fest edition. It's Wednesday, July 30th, 2014, and on today's program, we're going to talk about Nathan For You, Comedy Central's faux reality show, Blake Lively's new lifestyle website, Preserve, and a lovely ode to the surprising literary power of Goodnight Moon. We're going to talk about the surprising literary power of children's books generally. Joining me today is Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hi, Dana. Hey, Julia. And stepping in for Stephen Metcalf, who's out with a dental emergency, we've got brand newly minted Slate culture editor, Dan Kois.
2: Hello. My teeth are sound, I'm happy to say.
0: Hooray. Let us start today with Nathan for You. Nathan for You is, how to describe it, it's a comedy show on Comedy Central, but it is essentially a spoof of the improve your business genre of reality show, the sort of Gordon Ramsay comes and whips your bedraggled restaurant into shape, or I believe there's now a show like this about dance studios, or anyway, the solving the problems of the struggling business reality genre is a genre, and this is a very deadpan, uncomfortable, Larry David discomfort comedy esque comedian's take on that version of reality television. Right.
2: It's a version in which the the person who comes to make a business person's life better, in fact, complicates everything to the extent that often the business people flee from the the hoped for improvement.
0: Yes. It's like as though your business consultant was full of terrible ideas and really bad ways to implement them, and was just sort of a physically and emotionally uncomfortable person to be around. That is the joke of the show. The show is in the middle of its second season, and this week aired probably its biggest episode to date. One of the stunts that the show's host, Nathan Field, or a Canadian comedian, pulled was uh, in an effort to fix a struggling coffee business, he came up with the idea of launching a Starbucks spoof called Dumb Starbucks and basically using parody law to start a business that exploited Starbucks's brand and attracted customers but was basically impervious to lawsuit. So let's listen to a clip from this week's episode, Dumb Starbucks.
1: The problem with you is you have great coffee, but just no one knows what this place is. Correct. No one, you don't have a brand that people recognize. Absolutely. But maybe there's a shortcut to actually having brand recognition using a little something called parody law. Parody law used by artists like Weird Al Yankovic and shows like Saturday Night Live. Parody law allows you to use trademarks and copyrighted material as long as you're making fun of them. So if Elias could find a way to make fun of Starbucks, he'd be free and clear to borrow their valuable corporate name and image for his store. The plan? Turn the Helio Cafe into the world's first parody Starbucks. So how do you make that a parody without it, you just not mimicking their brand? Like, the coffees could be Dumb Grande, Dumb Venti, Dumb Frappuccino. Gotcha. I mean, as a whole, the store could just be called Dumb Starbucks. Right. That's Okay, I see what you're saying. But the Dumb could be small, so people could come in thinking it's an actual Starbucks. Huh. It's smart. I just don't know if people would, would get it. You know, I don't know if people are, you know... Well, do people get what you're doing now? You're not that popular. Right. You have no menu. That's true. I mean, what do you have to lose by trying?
2: truly heartbreaking, that moment. One of the like cringe-inducing aspects of the show is that Nathan Fielder really does not seem to have much of an, an emotional filter at all, and so he, with sort of deadpan effect, will often say unbelievably cruel things to people like your business is failing and there's nothing you can do about it. And so in, in this episode, Nathan eventually complicates the situation so badly that in fact that the coffee shop owner who he's trying to help eventually just completely divests himself of Nathan and Nathan enacts his dumb Starbucks plan all on his own and dumb Starbucks in fact became something of a viral phenomenon this past winter maybe was it and, uh, you know, it. I saw it covered everywhere. It was on Gawker. Slate may even have done something about it. And
3: Did he keep it a mystery as to what he was doing at first?
2: No, it became clear very quickly that he was, you know, because by that point the show had aired and people recognized him. But, but there
0: were a few days where people thought it might be a Banksy art project yes, or there, was, there was sort of swirling mystery around who was behind this viral art installation phenomenon. So there were a few days of intrigue.
2: Right. And even once it became clear who he was, he maintained a certain kind of of business-like main, which is to say that he, in his statements about it, never veered from the notion that the goal was to simply make as much money as possible by fooling people into thinking they were coming into a Starbucks and using parody law to protect himself from the company. Eventually, it was closed down by the health department.
0: Yeah, it's funny to, I think, evaluate this show based on the dumb Starbucks episode because it seems almost as though... The wild acclaim and success of this particular stunt is at odds with most of what happens in a typical episode of Nathan for you. But the show has become very popular among a certain set of TV watchers. And I found myself, I will confess, watching these episodes trying to put myself in the mindset of whatever cruel, socially inept, unfunny person would enjoy this show. I was not a fan of Nathan for you. Does either of you guys want to defend it? Did you enjoy it?
3: You know the more I watched it the more I started to kind of recognize its comic sophistication without actually laughing myself. I can see I don't know what demographic it's funny for I would imagine maybe younger men of around Nathan Fielder's age he's thirty one but I think he is engaging in a in a project that at times for example the dumb Starbucks experiment is kind of interesting. The idea that he's making fun of not just the business owners, but sort of capitalism itself. I think those are the moments the show succeeds more. But the humor is just too mean for me, frankly. I don't know if either of you saw any of the Santa episode or the Santa sub story in one episode where the prank that he pulls is that he has this department store Santa try to Kind of convince these children to ask for this toy, this very unfun toy that they've invented called the doinket. That's like a ball that doesn't bounce. And (laughs) Santa, and also this kind of focus group that talks to the children, essentially tries to convince them that you're not cool. You're you're a baby if you don't like this toy. You're a baby if you don't like doinket. Only babies don't don't like the doinket. And it's just to me that was just children cannot consent to be on a reality show in the way an adult can and be made to look foolish or or vulnerable or whoever they're made to look. And somehow the idea of picking on children in a reality show just rubbed me the wrong way. I found myself thinking like. You went too far, Nathan Fielder
2: yeah, so i'll defend the show as a extremely complex viewing experience, and one that at times did have me laughing quite a bit um in moments where the jokes or the concepts really hit, and at other times made me deeply unhappy with myself and the world <laughs> um and I think that there's value in that i mean it's a the show is very hard to describe and it's very hard to peg the tone of it exactly but it seemed to me that it was at its most successful when it broadened its scope to not only be about capitalism or even reality TV, but to be about the deep existential loneliness of Nathan Fielder. And so the episode that struck me the hardest and actually made me quite emotional at the end was an episode in which he, he hatches this scheme with a gas station owner, um, in which a, a struggling gas station needs to bring in customers. So he tells him that they should advertise an unbelievably low price for gas, like $1.50 a gallon. And you can legally do that in California if, in fact, the price that you advertise reflects a post-rebate price. So when gas station customers come in, they buy their gas, they pay $4.75 a gallon, but then they're given a rebate form that they can fill out and submit um, in order to get the rebate and get the cheap price of gas. However, the rebate System that Nathan Fielder sets up for this uh, gas station owner is unbelievably convoluted and complex, and so in order to get the rebate, customers have to climb a nearby mountain that is inaccessible by car. Um, at the top of the mountain, they are greeted by Nathan Fielder, who then poses a number of riddles to them. They must solve the riddles as a gri-
3: hours worth of riddles <laughs> hours <say>. worth <laughs> of riddles
2: you know and and then eventually they all end up staying overnight in tents on well, the well
3: a lot of, the of them mountain. a lot of them do decamp yeah he manages to keep three
2: he keeps three lonely rebate seekers and the show goes from being a show about people who will do anything for money, which to me is fundamentally mean, to a show about four lonely miserable people in a Tent trying to find something in common, Nathan Fielder included. And that is when the show crossed over for me from something sort of unpleasant and awful to something resonant and moral, which is to say that I found myself really, really, really feeling for all four of these people. And then which made me feel like sort of pleasantly like a bit of a sucker when at the end of the show, Nathan Fielder essentially dropped the curtain and claimed to be revealing that he didn't actually care about these people at all. And it was really all about the money in the the end for him. And I liked that. I liked sort of the way the show made my stomach turn in comedic ways. Like I enjoyed that. Well, I don't know if enjoy is the word. I appreciated that even as it made me unhappy and laughing at the same time.
0: I mean, maybe I'm a Philistine, but I just don't necessarily want a half hour on Comedy Central to be like taking me to the darkest places of my my <laughs> my moral and immoral self. Like, the, you know, this is not a Knausgaard. We're not like... <laughs> Maybe it is. Maybe it is. Maybe the more sophisticated view is to say, of course, a half hour on Comedy Central should take us to the darkest places of capitalism and the human soul. But I think it lets Nathan Fielder off a little bit too easy to say, well, he's really a wise guy with a a keen understanding of the problems of modern personhood. And so it's okay when he's just making these small business owners look like dupes and, and fools. You know, I mean, we've this notion of like, smart comedy guy interacts with middle American, like, not as media savvy chump type, right? We've seen that, you know, was pioneered or at least one prominent place that did it was The Daily Show in the early days when their sort of field reports were really built around the comedy of some representative of some, you know, Alabama chapter of who's he what not understanding what The Daily Show is and not understanding super deadpan comedic style. And they milked that for a few years. And then it feels to me like they pulled off of it because it started making people uncomfortable, making people unhappy.
3: Not to mention that almost everyone now knows what The Daily Show or the equivalent
0: is. There there were some exposure problems, too, I think. But I mean, it never felt that fun to me. But it seemed like the show and the audience grew sick of it as well, even people who had liked it more at the beginning. And this show really takes me back to that feeling of like, it just is mean-spirited to sit someone down for an interview and not be candid with them about what you're doing. Like it has this sort of punked quality to it that made me feel that whatever interesting ideas were in Nathan Fielder's head and however interestingly and amusingly he might edit these comedic bits together... I wasn't along for the ride.
3: Especially when the subject is in a position of power that's much weaker than Nathan Fielder's, as is the case with the children in the Santa episode or with the cabbie in that episode. I can't remember what, what the, the title was, but the theme is that this, this cab company is going to start a new business model where, where a screen in the, in the back seat will let you choose whether or not you want to have a conversation with your driver. And, uh, and almost everyone opts out of the conversation with the driver. But for the people that opt in, they have subject choices. And the driver is supposed to read up on these four random topics that people to talk about one of them being marine life world war ii was another one and so at this at this certain moment this taxi driver is loaded down with all these books that he's supposed to read to prep for conversations and he's not a native english speaker he can't express himself that clearly in english and the scene where nathan fielder kind of gets on him for not being up enough on marine life and world war ii really did strike me as kind of cruel and xenophobic
2: well what's especially interesting about that and about the show as a whole is that it the show deals, I think, much more explicitly than many other reality shows, specifically with uh, with economically struggling people. I mean, the business owners are almost universally economically struggling. That's why they're there. But also just many of his interactions are with non-native English speakers, are with people who are, you know, hungry enough for money that they will climb to the top of a mountain for it. There's a real sort of class struggle going on here that does, I think, taste bad sometimes when you watch Nathan Fielder and his camera crew deal with these people. And it's interesting, Julia, because, you know, you mentioned, you know, maybe Nathan Fielder is actually a wise soul who understands all these things, and I don't actually think that he probably is. I mean, so to me, the successes of the show feel essentially accidental. They feel like a smart crew and a producer and a host probably following stories in interesting ways, but it's so haphazard when the show works and when it doesn't. Whole episodes go by where no, where that magic never happens, right, where, you know, the, a, a joke is followed to its conclusion and it's sort of mean and kind of funny and it, it's not great. But the... But when the show hits, it feels like fortuitous circumstance leads to a kind of amazing television experience of the type that you wouldn't usually see. And it's abetted in part because Nathan Fielder is willing to let these things play out. And he's willing to let these conversations go out, string out much longer and more uncomfortably than they would otherwise. But it never necessarily feels like he we got there because they, they were aiming for us to get there in the end. It feels like a, a unhappy, happy accident occurred that allowed the show to sort of reach a different kind of level.
0: Now you're making me defend Nathan Fielder because I do think he knows what he's up to. It seems too self-conscious to not be intended. And the thing that he's doing that you could make the case for as brave or interesting is he's basically embodying white male capitalist power and just enacting the brute jerkiness of the system as the host of the show, which is a very unpleasant role to be in although
2: he's so regressive and i mean his personality is not that of white male capitalist power his personality is so passive aggressive and and deferential almost but also weird i mean he's an asocial being
0: Right. But, like, isn't capitalist power also sort of asocial? Like, <laughs> capitalism doesn't care how you feel about <laughs> it, right? Capitalism sort of is a, like, a socially unclued in weirdo comic. Capitalism More... is on the
2: Asperger spectrum.
0: I think so, right? Capitalism isn't actually the glad-handing business school guy who makes you feel like you just had a great conversation. Capitalism is just like a weirdo who's mean to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and so, all right, now I love the show. Forget <laughs> it. I've talked myself into it. Success. So so if if our collected musings have left you intrigued rather than repulsed, tune in. It's Nathan for you on Comedy Central. All right. Well, now is the moment in our show when we hear a word from our sponsor. Dana, who do we have today?
3: This week, we're happy to be sponsored by Audible.com, the leading provider of digital spoken audio information and entertainment. And as you know, they have over 150,000 titles on their site, which you can play on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now. And they have a special offer for Culture Gab Fest listeners. You can get a 30-day free trial and one free book by signing up at our URL, audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. And though you have one hundred and fifty thousand choices when you get there, what we've been doing here over the past few months at the Gabfest is compiling our Culture Gabfest bucket list of books on Audible that you must read or listen to in order to—I don't know—what is what? What? What are people struggling for in their bucket list? They're ascending to the Valhalla of culture conversation, where they're worthy of
0: conversation with Steve Metcalf.
3: I think at this point we may be driving more people away <laughs> with that offer. <laughs> but we have. When part- one
2: remains, they can get the <laughs> refund.
3: And since we're going to talk about children's literature today on the show, we thought we would move into the category of children's lit, which has plenty of bucket list worthy titles on Audible, including, Dan, what do we have this week?
2: Including the one and only Shrek, plus five other stories by William Steig. William Steig's great, great children's story about Shrek, which was later um, sort of made into a movie, though really wildly transformed into a thing that just featured um, that all-star song over and over and over again, which is not featured in the book. Um, (laughs) If you
3: only know Shrek through Mike Myers, you've got to go back to the source.
2: Yes, and it's uh, narrated delightfully, I'm sure, by Meryl Streep and Stanley Tucci. Dana, you have actually heard this one, right?
3: Yes, yes. I was the one who put in the plug for this one to be on the bucket list. This is one of our most listened-to audiobooks around the house, and it's one of those children's audiobooks that's so well done that I'll listen to it after my child falls asleep or leaves for school. I just leave it on and listen to the rest of the stories. The other stories on there, if you know your Stike stories at all, are Brave Irene, read by Meryl Streep. She reads it perfectly And it's one of my favorite William Steig stories. Also, Dr. DeSoto, the one about the fox dentist. That is my that was my father's favorite growing up. That is a great William Steig book. And also The Amazing Bone. I mean, we'll, we'll talk later about Steig, I hope, in our Children's Lit section. But all these stories are just absolute classics. And I think you should own the books as well because the illustrations are so great. But they sound beautiful, read by Streep and Tucci, who kind of understand his wit perfectly. I would listen to anything read by Street Pentucci, actually. But It's true. I mean, they could they could upgrade anything, but when they're actually reading great literature, it's it's sort of unbearable. That sounds like a great addition to the list. Your Audible membership will also include a free subscription to either the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give it a try, and remember to use our URL so Audible knows you're coming for the Culture Gap Fest. Audiblepodcast.com slash Culture Fest. Thanks, Dana. All right, for our second topic
0: today... Preserve us all. We are going to talk about Blake Lively's new lifestyle website, Preserve. Blake Lively, for those of you who don't know the name, is one of the stars of the late and lamented by some show, Gossip Girl. She's also married to sexiest man alive, at least in some year or other, Ryan Reynolds. She's a Vogue poster child who shows up in fancy clothes all over the place and seems to have some modicum of acting talent. And now, like her blonde... Cistron before her, Gwyneth Paltrow and Lauren Conrad, she has launched a personal personality cult empire website magazine thingamajig, and we are discussing it today and also discussing in general celebrity brand extensions. Dana, will you preserve your links to preserve <laughs>
3: The first thing that baffles me about Preserve is the name. I don't know what kind of branding consultant sat down with Blake Lively and suggested that she name her lifestyle artisanal goods selling website Preserve because to me that immediately evokes it just it sounds like Blake Lively's aging and she needs to be dipped in formaldehyde. It's the opposite of the dewy fresh feeling that she's going for in her editor's picture of herself beautifully lit and wearing a satin teddy as she writes in her journal.
0: You write all your your uh, film pieces in satin teddies, right? <laughs> This uh, scruffy ponytail. You actually put in extensions in order to write.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Julia's being kind. She has not noted that I'm actually wearing a satin teddy to record this podcast today. You're right that the, the neither the name nor the site itself really gives the sort of impression of beautiful simplicity that I think she's going for right i I think the cut memorably referred to the site as looking like the website of a horror movie from like 2007 like it's black and there's a white lettering and then there's this spooky ghost picture which then later you're like oh that's blake lively
0: it's just very hard to tell
2: there's a lot going on
0: let's talk a little bit about her editor's letter where she explains what the site is dan can can
2: i read a bit of it please do sitting down to write this editor's letter has been the hardest thing i've done yet on my preserve journey. I'm more intimidated than I should probably admit. I'm no editor, no artisan, no expert, and certainly no arbiter of what you should buy, wear, or eat. I am hungry, though. Not just for enchiladas. I'm hungry for experience. So Blake's editor's letter tries to set herself up as just a regular person who just happens to have launched a website based on the cult of her own personality to transform you into a better person yourself. Um, it's pitched along the notion that everyone has a story to tell, though I don't know that I see that notion that that many other places on the site. and um, And it suggests that As she says, um, we haven't looked at Preserve as a new website, but rather as a new street, a sort of greatest hits of Main Street USA. While the whole world races to keep up with technology, we tighten our laces, join the race, but our end goal is to preserve what's already there. A pretty lofty goal, a pretty lofty statement, but a group of determined hearts behind it. I find the statement actually a little bit confusing in that she admits that she is using technology but to battle technology. So I guess through this website, you will get the handcrafted items that will then be packed into boxes and shipped to you to preserve...
3: The American way of life.
2: The, as things once were 200 years before Blake Lively was even born.
3: And they do traffic only in goods produced in the U.S., which I'm not clear on whether that has to do with, you know, legal strictures they haven't gotten around yet as far as international shipping or whether <laughs> she is actually sort of trying to pre- preserve American folkways and keep keep labor strong.
2: I will say to her credit that, you know, as opposed to something like goop, say, the items on preserve are like not wildly outlandish in in price or even in concept you know and they actually do a very i will give props to her website designer for one thing which is that when you click on the shop tab on preserve the items are presented to you in ascending order of price so that the first thing you see is not the two thousand dollar handbag the first thing you see is curry ketchup for seven bucks, which is like that's an absurd price to pay for curry ketchup, but seven dollars is not does not immediately make you think, "Wow, this website is only for the fabulously wealthy." The way that often going on Goop will, where you're like, "Oh yes, that thousand dollar shot glass is just for me."
0: Dan, you are speaking as though our listeners automatically know that Goop is the style website of Gwyneth Paltrow. Goop is the style website of Gwyneth Paltrow, and. I had a strange response to this website. It's very weird to have a celebrity attempt to extend their brand and consolidate their power and maybe start a business and make some money by doing a version of the thing that you yourself do professionally. Like the notion that starting a website or running a website – is like the new cool thing for celebrities to do is amusing to to us workaday folks who who work at websites and puts you in the strange position of actually being very well equipped to evaluate how the people who worked with Blake Lively on this website let her down. My primary experience of reading Preserve was to just feel very very sad for Blake Lively, like to feel like clearly she signs off her editors letter with excitement and sincerity. And she clearly is very excited and sincere about this utterly misbegotten effort. And the people she has hired to help her figure out what a website should be or how it should look like in this day and age or who should be hired to write it and what sentences they should be allowed to commit to pixels are not good at those tasks, in my view. And Gwyneth Paltrow, her goop empire from the time I've spent there, which isn't that much, she has hired people who are good at doing that. Yes, It is very fun to read goop. It is not necessarily fun because you want to buy $2,000 handbags or $40 bottles of ketchup or whatever the ketchup costs on goop. I, I think you're right that there is sort of a price point and non-London differentiation here. Clearly somebody thought, well, Gwyneth is that – you know. Manhattan snoot who moved to London and is sneering at us all from over there. This is the American version of Goop. Blake is a real. She's a real American who married a Canadian. So there's some differentiation there. But if you look at Goop, it does look like the effortless life of a live blonde titan who just (laughs) – oh, you know, I remember reading some essay there – you know, where she's like, tips from working moms. And then the working moms were all just like stunningly rich women who were totally oblivious, where Sheryl Sandberg is like, well, the three nannies come and we have them in shifts. And so then I'm always very careful to spend, you know, a few hours at Tuckin and you just have to make time for it. And it's like, well, you know, the the, the stunning obliviousness is allows for a certain kind of Schadenfreude reading. But the Schadenfreude is about the entitlement, the class privilege, and there's, just sort of delight in in putting yourself in the headspace of utter loony bins. Whereas in Blake Lively's site, in Preserve, the message itself is so muddy. The site is so murky. The writing is just so bad. There's not, whatever she's trying to do has not been clearly executed. So there's not even something that you can gleefully, shodden enjoy hating. I just feel sad that somehow she and various people sunk money into this effort.
2: I mean, it is easy and fun to make fun of the writing on this website, as it is easy and fun to make fun of the writing on all terrible websites. But I guess the question is, what does a celebrity believe they are going to get out of something like this? Is it just that Blake Lively needs cash and this is the way to do it? Is it that Blake Lively aspires to be Gwyneth Paltrow? I mean, so in researching this, I was reminded of um, the fact that This is not like a fully new thing. Even before Gwyneth Paltrow, there were other ways uh, that people did this. And in fact, Helen Rosner on Twitter the other day noted that uh, in the 90s, Cher had a lifestyle catalog that she, a limited edition lifestyle catalog that she sent out to 500 lucky Cher fans, I guess. It was called Sanctuary. It was huge. 50,000 catalogs were mailed nationwide the second week in September of 1994, and it is, it was a huge catalog for people who wanted to devote their lifestyle or model their lifestyle after shares. It was very gothy. It had like lots of fishnet and, but you know, it, I feel like there's always been the sense that celebrities at some point feel like, oh, I can be more than this thing I am. I can be, I can ascend, I guess, to the cultural firmament or I can become a, not just a, a star, but an icon and Uh, Is iconhood what Blake Lively is after here?
0: I mean, I guess the thing that, again, just makes me feel sad for Blake Lively here is that you have to know your brand as one of these celebrities when you're going to figure out what to do. There was just an interesting piece, I think, actually, in Entertainment Weekly earlier this summer about Jessica Alba and the way she's managed her brand extensions. And she's into all kinds of, like, hippy-dippy parenting tools and has like a diaper company. And, you know, she's all over the Vita Coco billboards or whichever of the vitamin waters or the coconut water she's associated with. She's someone who's found a way to make money on the side of her acting career and to extend her brand in a way that's not just about like pure dollops of spokesmanship from her heart that involve writing. And it seems to be working for her very well as a business. There's, you know celebrities all the time Jessica Simpson has a fashion company for like five years I wore Jessica Simpson ballet flats every summer because they were really cheap and they would last a summer and you know like there's lots of ways to extend upon being a semi-famous actress type person and make money that leverage your persona in a way that is smart and not embarrassing and there's something about this effort where it feels like she's not a share. Blake Lively is a, like, two-bit TV star who Vogue thinks can wear clothes well, so maybe she has an inflated sense of self or something, but she just does not have the personal charisma and chutzpah to be the center of a of a cult of personality lifestyle empire. She could probably do vitamin water or something, but she's just not... Nobody wants to be Blake Lively.
3: But can I just say, I mean, in this whole conversation, I feel like Goop and Gwyneth Paltrow are being held up as this sort of ideal that Blake Lively or whatever celebrity is trying to strive for and not reaching. I mean, I, I find the Goop website, although it's obviously much better managed and better written and sort of a much nicer user interface, I find it really embarrassing for Gwyneth Paltrow. I don't feel like it it improves my opinion of her that she has that website and displays herself and her family in that way on that website. I find it really cringeful. And in a way, I almost appreciate that with this Blake Lively site, you can sort of see the cracks and see the strain and sort of see the whole enterprise falling apart. I mean, Gwyneth sort of has it down too well.
2: It makes me feel like there must be just a shadow economy in Hollywood of quasi entrepreneurs who who, like worked for some website some time and they've managed to insinuate themselves into the world of celebrities to such an extent that when one sort of B-level actress sees another one at a party and the second one is like, you know, I'm thinking of launching a website. They say, oh, well, get this guy. He did such a great job with my website. And actually, he worked at Yahoo for like two years.
3: I want to see a reality show about that guy yeah. or woman, whoever it is that put the whole thing together on a conceptual Maybe level. Nathan Fielder can save like Lively's Preserve. That is an episode, of <laughs> Nathan, for you. Oh, my God. We're bringing it all together. Yeah, it was meant that's to perfect. be. That's that, perfect.
0: That I would certainly watch. All right. Well, the website is Preserve. It is somewhat strangely found at Preserve.us, which is both plaintive and perhaps another nod to the good old U.S. of A. Check it out or don't. Uh, Before we move on to our third topic, I want to give our listeners a quick reminder about Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program for our listeners and readers. For five bucks a month or fifty bucks a year, you get access to all sorts of perks, including bonus segments on this podcast today. In fact, we're going to interview Dan Coyce about the wonderful Murakami excerpt that we ran on Slate this week. And spoiler alert, if you've been struggling with the puzzle part of it, there's a puzzle component, he is going to give away the answer to Slate Plus listeners. You will know how to solve the puzzle if you listen to the Slate Plus segment. So again, it's five bucks a month, 50 bucks a year. Go to slate.com slash culture plus to learn more and sign up. All right, on to our third topic. All right, our third topic this week is inspired by a beautiful essay that Amy Bender wrote for the New York Times' website, in which she describes rediscovering the book Goodnight Moon after the birth of her twins. She writes about reading it for the first time. The babies listened in their sleepy baby way, and as the pages turned, I felt a growing excitement, a literary excitement. Not what I expected from this moment, but I was struck and stunned as I have been before by a classic sneaking up on me, and in an instant earning yet again another fan. It also seemed to me to be an immediately useful writing tool and so in the essay, Amy Bender goes on to talk about the literary sophistication of the book and and some of its more charming and provocative uh, lines and resonances. And listener Sarah Bannon suggested on Twitter that we have this as our third topic this week. And we decided it would be interesting as critics, actually, to sit down and talk about children's books and their unplumbed depths. It's it's very unusual to read, like, a critical take on a board book, for example, or the sort of – you just don't read much criticism of books like Goodnight Moon. You sort of know them. They're grooved in your memory from childhood. They're grooved in your memory from, you know, the countless hours reading them when your kids were little – but you don't always turn your critical eye on them. So we thought it might be fun to to talk today about some of our favorites from childhood that we'd rediscovered as parents and also to maybe talk about some books that are either new since we were young or that we just never encountered that that we've discovered as adults and and love. But let's start with a moment on Goodnight Moon. Did you guys agree with this assessment of Amy Bender's that Goodnight Moon is a particularly sophisticated piece of uh, literature?
2: Yeah, the emphasis on "Goodnight, Nobody," "Goodnight, Mush." That moment—it's a two-page spread, I think, in the book where the "Goodnight, Nobody" page is, in fact, it's a blank page, and that is very striking when you are reading that to a child. And I think it floats over kids of that age when you go through it because it's the rhythms of it are so lulling. But when you're adult, you're an adult reading that moment, it does—you do have an instant, or I at least do have an instant of thinking, "Oh, this book has just." sort of blown up far beyond the bounds of this little room with these little rabbits. Uh, And it's embracing something bigger than itself, though it's always a little bit ineffable what that something is.
3: I actually have that spread up on the wall in my office. My partner scanned it for me, Good night, nobody, Good night, mush, and I have it up. I remember as a child thinking that that spread was really funny, not because of the nobody, but because of the mush. Something about saying goodnight to the bowl of mush and the word mush always made me laugh as a kid. I, to tell you the truth, I was not incredibly impressed with this Amy Bender essay. I love that she discovered Goodnight Moon and that she she loved reading it to her twins, and, and that's really great. But a part of me just sort of was a bit puzzled that someone who is a novelist is patting herself on the back for discovering that Margaret Wise Brown's Goodnight Moon is a good children's book. I mean, it, it is a little bit like saying, gee, you know— this, this Shakespeare dude really has it. I mean, there is no children's book that's more iconic and more appreciated and more loved than Goodnight Moon. And obviously not just because it's a cute book that puts kids to sleep, which seems to be what she implies. She thought of the book before reading it. So I guess there was a part of me that was a little bit rubbed the wrong way by, you know, literary adult author of fiction who was surprised that children's fiction could be sophisticated. I
2: think that that mirrors the feeling of many parents and readers for whom these books are totems of childhood and are useful tools in connecting to children, but who don't necessarily dig into them for the for example the mechanics of the way they work like that didn't bother me necessarily. It is true that I expect more of my award winning literary novelists than I do of of everyone else, but at the same time that I feel like the piece is meant for the parents out there, not the other literary novelists necessarily.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it was a little bit gee whiz, I think, about the power of of Goodnight Moon. But I do think that particular page, the Goodnight Nobody, it it is the line that has struck me and my husband in reading the book over the last year and a half to our kids and just feeling like, what is that page about? Is that page about death? Is that page about the void? Is that page about interstellar life? Is that page about blackness? Is that page, you know, it it just sort of broadens you out of this cozy room and evokes the feeling of nighttime where you're sort of drifting off and entering this infinite deep sleep.
3: I did Um, like the observation she makes about the end, which has a similar kind of feeling of of escape from the room, right? Because she points out very astutely that the book could have ended on a rhyme and also with a kind of comforting moment if it had ended with the line, good night to the old lady whispering hush, which rhymes with mush and which could have ended the book. And then there's two more pages, I think, or maybe it's on one spread that just say, good night stars, good night air, good night noises everywhere. And the way that she talks about the, the story kind of going out the window and outside the room, I thought was was lovely. There is an
0: experience that I've had as a parent of rediscovering children's literature and having it totally confound my memories of what children's literature is all about. I mean, the thing that these kids' books do from very early on is assume a whole body of knowledge and information that your tots do not have. And I can't tell if that's just because these books are really aimed at parents who don't want to get their eyes glazed over reading the same thing 27 times in a row, or whether there is really something about how children pick up narratives and information where, you know, like our kids have not learned the fairy tales. We've never read them any books that are like, this is what happens in Cinderella. This is what happens in Jack and Jill. Like, we've never read them the straight nursery rhymes. The number of books that we've read to them that riff off of nursery rhymes or sort of play around with nursery rhyme tropes as though, you know, these unformed blob kids have any clue who Jack and Jill are, much less that it's funny to have Jack and Jill spliced into some other situation. There's all these assumptions of of knowledge made and assumptions of sophistication that are sort of charming. Like a lot of kids' books really talk to very young children as though they're adults, as though they can handle touching the void, Goodnight Moon style. And And it
3: seems like that is the way culture is passed down, right? I mean, we would never be able to pass down these stories and ideas and archetypes if we didn't at some point read them and tell them to people who don't yet understand them.
0: Right, but the thing that, that confounds me and amazes me is that I'm not even ever actually telling the story itself. I'm telling these kind of riffs and reflections and tangents on... The classic tales, and it seems like my boys are absorbing the stories that way.
2: There's a, a great piece that our former editor David Plotz wrote a couple of years ago um, for Slate about uh, a Mo Willems book um, called We Are in a Book, uh, which is uh, stars Elephant and Piggy, who are um, two of Mo Willems' most popular characters, and they're not at pigeon level, but they are—they're close. Um, and they have, they have a whole series of books where they have book adventures, but the books themselves are very textually playful and, in fact, often deal with sort of the, the meta reality of existing as characters, but never more so than We Are in a Book, which, in fact, is a book about Elephant and Piggy realizing that they are characters in a book. Um, and Plotz's piece um, put forth the argument that, uh, that, in, that the book is about parents explaining to kids in some measure about death, that the book is about peering into the void because Elephant and Piggy halfway through the book are faced with the fact that at one point the book will end. And what happens then? What happens to them then? They're thrown into an existential panic. And the book ends, in fact, with them suggesting that the reader just go back to the beginning and read the book again, and that way they might live on forever and ever. But it is a piece that does suggest, and when I've read this book to my kids, I have seen that they sort of embrace the spiritual aspect of it. And it does lead them to enjoy asking questions about these kinds of things. Sometimes those questions go into dark and difficult places. But they do understand that there is a sort of adult consciousness at work in this book, instilling certain notions and lessons about the, the deeper, darker issues of life.
0: All right. So we're just going to discuss a a couple books that that have really struck us as readers over the years. Dan, uh, what's yours?
2: Um, Well, I'm holding on to, uh, in fact, a a copy that Dana brought in uh, of Little Fur Family, um, which is also by Margaret Wise Brown. The pictures are are by Garth Williams. It's a book that you may recall for its fuzzy cover. Um, which in various different formats is exhibited in different ways. I'm actually holding one that just looks like a tiny little beast that you hold in your hands.
3: One you... thing I love about that version is that there's no words on the spine or anywhere. The entire fur cover is just one continuous piece of fur. So you have to open it to see what the book it's is. It's
2: just a little fur book. Um, and one reason that I really like this book is is actually similar to the reason that that Amy Bender brought in her discussion of Goodnight Moon, which is the slight weirdness of the ending little fur family does in fact it's a, the story of a of a, a little fur family warmest toast smaller than most and little fur coats and the little fur boy who goes out to play in the wild wood and he gets in a lot of adventures and he wakes up as grandpa but then the heart of the book is this very odd moment in which he um, catches a smaller, tiny fur animal who looks just like him, but is even littler. Um, and he, the little fur animal, has warm, silky fur and a warm and a little fur nose. And it, he puts it down and it runs away. But it's this very f- it, weird moment of of, of that a child, I think, could never even imagine of finding a smaller child, a smaller version of oneself out there in the world. But then the book ends with, as you might expect, the little fur child going home and his mom and dad reading him a, a story and putting him to bed. And it does sort of end at the moment where Amy Bender suggested a book like this would traditionally end with the family putting the child gently to sleep. But then they sing him a song. And what I like about this book the most is, is the way that the song ends. The song goes, sleep, sleep, our little fur child, out of the windiness, out of the wild. Sleep warm in your fur all night long in your little fur family, this is a song. (laughs) And that is the last line of the book. And every time I have read this to a kid, I've been struck freshly anew by the total out-of-left-fieldness of that last line and the way it sums up not just the song itself, but the entire book, and in fact the entire notion of reading to another being, that this way of conveying information is in fact timeless and endless and will one day be done by my child to her children and then those children to those children and then and so on until global warming kills us all.
3: Dan, I feel such spiritual kinship with you right now because if you're you're intense reading of Little Fur Family, I love that book and 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 I think the same two moments in it are the Good Night Nobody moments, the moments where you're sort of outside of the narrative and in some sort of other poetic space when he finds the little fur creature that looks like him and sort of plays with it and then lets it run away. The illustration also is incredible because you can not quite see it's such a small book in the first place and then it's a small creature finding an even smaller version of himself and so you can barely see this tiny mysterious thing that runs away but it's so fascinating. And then that song at the end which I just have to tell you that I have a melody for that song that I think should be the worldwide melody for Let's that. Song. And when friends of mine have babies, I sometimes send them a copy of Little Fur Family and then link to a sound. Send them a link to a SoundCloud of me singing the song so that they'll carry it on to their children. So should I sing it for you now, please? Yes, go. Sleep, sleep, our little fur child, out of the windiness, out of the wild. Sleep warm in your fur all night long in your little fur family. This is a song.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> That's great.
2: <laughs> I almost just dozed off. It was so lovely.
3: I felt very cozy here yeah. in the studio. Yeah. So I don't want anyone singing the Fur Family song with any other melody than that one. All right, I'm on it. Yeah, I like. The, I like. I'm not used to Dana Stevens like police. <laughs>
0: Like Dana, the enforcer, who yeah. wants things to be a certain way when it like comes to her family,
3: I brook no disagreement
0: yeah.
3: <laughs> all right, Dana, did you bring one that you want to talk about? Yes, I have a we have a wonderful pile of children's books before us, but i 'll actually read a bit that has to do with what Dan was just saying about, and you know this whole good good night, nobody idea where there's sort of a moment in the narrative that you become aware. Either of its storiness or sort of of the eternity, you know, the eternity of of storytelling. So this is from the end of Little House in the Big Woods, the first in the uh, in the Laura Ingalls Wilder series, which I'm slowly reading my way through with my daughter right now. Once in a while, she'll get tired of the, the nonstop Pioneer. I just I love these books so much that I want us to read them every single night. And sometimes she asks for a break, but we've already made it to By the Shores of Silver Lake, which is I guess about the, the fifth book in. And I should say that the Little House series, at least in the original version, was also illustrated by Garth Williams, who illustrated Little for a Family and Charlotte's Webb and who is just one of the great children's book illustrators. So this is the very end of Little House in the Big Woods, and, uh, and Laura Ingalls is falling asleep in her cabin, listening to her, her ma and pa talk and her pa play the fiddle. And I think I should preface it by saying, as beautifully written as they are, the Little House books are usually not very introspective, right? They're very practical. They're all about the practical details of everyday life. How not to die of the og, oh, ague, however you say
2: you. How to preserve your meat.
3: And blow up a pig bladder and play, mm-hmm. play, play balloons Play it. should definitely be writing more about Laura Ingalls Wilder. It's true. It's, it's, it's USA, preserve.us. But so at the end of, of Little House in the Big Woods, there is this unusual contemplative moment on Laura Ingalls Wilder's part. She's lying in bed and she hears her pa singing a song, Auld Lang Syne. And so they're all the entire lyrics of, of Auld Lang Syne are printed. And then it says, When the fiddle had stopped singing, Laura called out softly, What are days of Auld Lang Syne, pa? They are the days of a long time ago, Laura, Pa said. Go to sleep now. But Laura lay awake a little while, listening to Pa's fiddle softly playing into the lonely sound of the wind in the big woods. She looked at Pa sitting on the bench by the hearth, the firelight gleaming on his brown beard and hair and glistening on the honey-brown fiddle. She looked at Ma gently rocking and knitting. She thought to herself, this is now. She was glad that the cozy house and Pa and Ma and the firelight and the music were now. They could not be forgotten, she thought, because now is now. It can never be a long time ago. Oh my god, I almost started crying just reading that. It's such a beautiful last sentence. Now is now, it can never be a long time ago. And that's the end of her reminiscence of her childhood. Isn't that just so beautiful and unexpected of a way for that book to end?
2: It's the end of boyhood. It's the exact end of boyhood. Oh my god,
3: I actually I actually thought of that when I was gathering this to bring in and I forgot to say it. I'm glad you brought that up. Almost line for line, yeah. right? Yeah, that kind of that kind of realization and she's not even stoned. <laughs> <laughs> but it is funny like so so is the audience for these
0: reflective moments actually children or is the audience for these moments parents who are reading to their children and are thinking very consciously about the act of what it means to be creating a childhood for another person as you, the very fact of having a kid, sort of means that your own extended childhood has ended. Like, are we really teaching kids about the void or are we just reminding ourselves of it?
2: Why can't it not be both? I mean, I think that When you are a child and you receive this message, the sort of mystery of it is appealing to you in some absent way. Perhaps you're more interested in the mush than you are in the nobody, but the nobody still registers.
3: And it's the rhythm of "Good night, nobody. Good night, mush" that makes the mush funny, right? right? Although I might not have known that consciously as a child, something about going from nobody to mush is just hilarious. The juxtaposition is just great.
2: And then when you're the adult, that is when the message becomes more reflective and personal to you. But one of the reasons it is is because the is because that experience, whether or not that particular book was part of your childhood, that experience of childhood reading was part of your childhood.
0: Right. Well, a book that was a child favorite of mine that had kind of faded from memory until someone gave it to us in this new era of being parents is Corduroy, which um, has story and pictures by Don Freeman. And Corduroy is the story of the bear in the department store with only one button. Uh, and when everyone, all the shoppers leave at the end of the day and the department store is quiet at night, he travels around in search of a button uh, and fails to find one, but eventually gets taken home by a young girl who gives him his missing button. And I remember loving this story as a child because of the magic of what happens in the places you are in the day at nighttime. Because mm-hmm. at nighttime, you are in all of these other stories. Everybody's being put to bed. It's bedtime for the hippos, and it's bedtime for the lions, and it's goodnight, Gorilla, and it's good night, Moon, and it's good night, New York City, you know, like the people are going to bed in t- children's books all the time so it's fun to encounter a children's book where somebody's not going to bed and they're sneaking around and you're getting a view of what the world is the adult world of what happens beyond your ken when you're not there and i think especially also with public establishments as a child i remember you know there's that moment you have where you realize that your teacher is a human who has a who does not exist only in your classroom and doesn't like sleep in a cot at the foot of her desk or something like that and i think this book has a little bit of that charm too where you're like oh yeah the department store exists not just when my parents take me there. So I sort of thought of this as a timeless tale. But rereading this book, I noticed that the child who who brings Corduroy home is black, and that it seems to be set in New York, and that the mother initially says that the child can't bring Corduroy home because he's missing a button and because she's already spent too much that day. But then the next day, after Corduroy's overnight adventure, the child comes back and she's gotten permission from her mom to spend all her savings on corduroy and bring him home. And then she has a button for him and a little bed for him to sleep in and they they have a home and a friend together and and it's all very sweet. And so I think I had thought this book was from like the early twentieth century, but when I noticed the skin color I thought perhaps that was not the case. And it's from the sixties, right? Yeah. The book came out in nineteen sixty eight. And there's just all of these, you know, little touches about class and race. When when she brings Corduroy home, it's clearly a walk-up apartment. There's, I love
3: how their apartment is rendered, yeah.
0: There's a line about walking up all the flights of stairs to bring Corduroy home. And none of this, you know, all of this seeps into your conscious in some way or another. But I was just totally surprised. I had totally misfiled this book in my head because I had never looked back at it after I learned anything about race or class or world history. <laughs> and so I thought this was like kind of a timeless tale of the mysteries of the nighttime and the friendships that young kids have with particular beloved objects in their lives. And instead, I found, oh, this is maybe like a little bit of revisionist children's literature that's trying to broaden the sense of who might be the protagonist of a, of a kid's story. Uh, And that made me like it even more.
3: You should check out a pocket for Corduroy where Lisa takes him to a laundromat and leaves him in a laundromat. And there's this great kind of beatnik character who finds him. I love that one. You have that one too?
0: No, but I have not reread that as an adult. You're calling out my childhood memories of it. But no, I would not have known what a beatnik was. (laughs)
3: He's this awesome guy who's illustrated with sort of like a beret and a striped shirt. And you can just see him like holding a, a classic palette and, you know, painting it. But you knew,
2: you knew what a beatnik was. A beatnik was like, it was like Grover or, you know, a beatnik is an archetype for even for kids of our generation that this that the shaggy weirdo is a part of our lives. And one of the reasons, even if we never encountered shaggy weirdos in our you know, our cosseted child existences, we saw them in books like these. And that means something.
0: Right. I mean, there is this way in which you're sort of learning the rules, even when the books are breaking the rules, which is one thing I love. I mean, another kid's book that that I rediscovered that I sort of thought I had maybe made up in my head is a book by Cecily Jocelyn called What Do You Say, Dear? A Book of Manners for All Occasions with Wonderful Pictures by Maurice Sendak. Did you guys have this book or read it to I kids? didn't have it as a child, but we have it now.
2: I've never seen it
0: before. It's so great. I, maybe your kids are too old for it now, Dan, but it's really fun. And what it plays off of is the didactic quality of some bad children's literature where we have some super insipid book that's all about like Mama Penguin loves it when you give a hug and when you eat your food and when you clean up your toys. And and there's no twist or mystery. It's like all just the electronic ankle bracelet of children's books. Like it has (laughs) no imaginative ideas in it. It just wants to like police the behavior of the children. And What Do You Say, Dear, is a book that ostensibly teaches manners, but it teaches manners in a series, uh, it teaches actual manners in a series of completely ridiculous situations with really delightful syndakian uh, illustrations. So I will I which I always try to read in a really snooty British accent because it seems suitable. So I will read you the first one. You are downtown and there is a gentleman giving baby elephants to people. You want to take one home because you have always I guess this isn't a British accent. It's sort of more like a like a clipped Hollywood thing. Anyway, I have a way of reading it. You guys can figure out what you think. You are downtown, and there is a gentleman giving baby elephants to people. You want to take one home because you have always wanted a baby elephant. But first, the gentleman introduces you to each other. What do you say, dear? And then there's an illustration of the young man bowing to the baby elephant who is bowing in return. How do you do? And it just continues in that vein. It encapsulates a bunch of preposterous and even dangerous events. You are a cowboy riding around the range. Suddenly, bad-nosed Bill comes up behind you with a gun. He says, would you like me to shoot a hole in your head? What do you say, dear? No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it sort of delightfully includes all the manners, but with so much more imagination than the stupid penguin book. Uh, and it's endlessly fun to read. And the kids who don't know anything about bad nose bill or guns or, you know, manners or dinosaurs or baby elephants or planes crashing into duchesses' houses. They're just delighted by it because it has so much more spirit and wit than some of the other books that might do this do.
3: And then th- that means that the parent reads it with much more spirit and wit, right? So it does all sort of become part of the experience of the book, whether you understand it or not. Right. It's like, I feel that this book
0: must be read in an imperious upper crust tone in the same way that you feel that that song... Must be sung in that particular way. Right. I have not SoundClouded it, although maybe that, maybe I need to. <laughs> um,
3: we all need to SoundCloud our canonical readings of how books <laughs> must be read. <laughs> Well, we're almost out of time. So in the interest of not going on too long, I'm just going to basically read out a quick list of children's books that I consider great literature and uh, and that I feel really lucky to have gotten to read. Um, James Marshall's George and Martha books. I feel like everybody should have those stories for their kids in their house. And they have such unique illustrations and such an incredible imagination. And I just love James Marshall. Arnold Lobel's books, Mouse Soup and Mouse Tales are the ones that I brought in to look at today. But it, Everything by Arnold Lobel is absolutely fantastic. Charlotte Zolotow, who some of her books are illustrated by, you know, some of the illustrators we've been talking about. Um, she only does the text, but she is one of those poets who's all about the good night nobody, kind of the void moment. And just three more, Uri Shulevich, Tommy Unger, and William Steig. Those feel to me like something that every great children's bookshelf should have on it. You
0: probably need to have a whole another canonical. We need a Culture Gabfest bucket list of children's literature, too, probably, but... We'll have to save that for, for another For now, day. we're just
3: throwing them all in the same bucket. I feel like nope. there's not really a distinction. I mean, Maury Sendak famously said and insisted constantly in interviews that he did not write books for children. He just wrote the books that he needed and wanted to write. And, you know, they ended up being books that people of all ages can read and look at the pictures. But he didn't think of himself as somebody who was a pedagogical kids lit author. Which is
0: probably why his books are more interesting than the penguin mama who wants you to do your chores. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, children's literature, we like it. You should, too. Uh, the essay on Goodnight Moon from Amy Bender was in the New York Times. All right, shall we endorse? Let's endorse. Dana, what have you got?
3: This week, I'm going to endorse a 2007 film by a Swedish director named Roy Anderson called You the Living. Have either of you seen You the Living? Mm -mm. Nope. So people have been telling me for years to watch You the Living, and it's been on my Netflix queue, and I finally was on a plane and just plonked it in and watched it, and it's such a marvel. I really want to explore this guy's other movies and turn people onto it. So You the Living has a little bit of a slacker-like structure, Richard Linklater's slacker, in that it doesn't have any one main protagonist. It's sort of about 50 little tiny vignettes that are all taking place in the same city and that sometimes interrelate and cross over, but that don't really follow any narrative thread. And they have sort of a a bleak existential, slightly maybe Jim Jarmusch, Aki Korizmaki kind of feeling once in a while. But they also... exist in this aesthetic universe that seems completely unique to Roy Anderson. And if you do get this movie, I suggest that you get it on a disc that has featurettes or find some way to watch some of the making ofs, which on the Netflix disc, they don't have it streaming, but you can get it on disc, has all these wonderful extras about how it was made. Because Roy Anderson, who I think has a background as a stage artist, does all these really, really great things with sets. He constructs sets very specifically, just rooms and interiors and sometimes exteriors to have this particular sort of lonely, washed out feeling. And in the DVD featurette, you see that most of them are created with trompe l'oeil and painted backgrounds and miniatures and all these things that you're completely unaware at the time were being done. You, you thought that they're actually practical effects that seemed to be reality. And so watching how all that gets put together and seeing the crew kind of create these little miniature skylines that they lower into the picture and, uh, and even exteriors that you believed somebody was outside on a winds- windswept plane and they're actually in a studio standing against a 10-foot square background, it's kind of incredible to see it all get put together. So it's a very poetic kind of lyrical filmmaking, You, The Living by Roy Anderson. That sounds great.
0: I'm going to add that to my list. Dan, what have you got for us?
2: Um, I'm going to recommend an album that, in fact, comes out next week, but is now available to stream and listen to and sample right now on iTunes Radio. It is the new album by Spoon. I love Spoon. It's called They Want My Soul. So I have written a profile of Spoon, which is coming out this coming weekend, um, in the New York Times Magazine, and so I uh, have you know a vested interest in people listening to this, so they will read my profile and be interested in it. But I also legitimately think the album is very, very wonderful, and is an example, I think, of uh, a band not actually really wildly diverging from their sound in any major way, but expanding it in interesting in an interesting manner. It's it's full of really good Spoon songs. Um, but it feels much more loud and classic rocky and uh, like the kind of album that you would play loudly in your car right driving around in the summer than maybe a few past Spoon albums have, which have been a sort of headphone records, I think. But this one, I mean, the first song, in fact... Uh, is based to some extent on I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett, and in fact sounds quite a bit like I Love Rock and Roll and is a great song for just blasting as you drive around the beach. It's called Rent I Pay, and then the album is called They Want My Soul. It's very good.
0: Wow. I really like Joan Jett. I really like Spoon. I really like driving around in the car playing music. I think I better download that song. It's made for you. (laughs) Um, I have a, a swift endorsement this week that I may have actually endorsed before. But Dana, your recommendation um, in our Audible segment of the Stanley Tucci, Meryl Streep, Red, William Styg books called to mind for me one of my absolute favorite all-time Terry Gross interviews, which was with Stanley Tucci not too long after his wife died, in which he told a series of wonderful stories about acting, about his career, about grief, and also marvelously about being in a group of people who have dinner parties where they do charades that includes meryl streep and his (laughs) stories of what it's like to do charades with meryl streep it's like exactly what you want a terry gross episode a fresh air episode to do and be so if you've never listened to that cue it up and give it a listen It, it if you love terry gross if you love stanley tucci if you love charades you should listen oh that sounds fantastic all right dan thank you so much for sitting in with your sound teeth thanks guys dana always nice thank you julia You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Please do go there this week and nominate your kitty lit greats. Our producer is Ann Haberman. Our intern is Josephine Livingston. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is at slatecultfest. For Dana Stevens and Dan Coist, I'm Julia Turner. Thanks for joining us.